long ago in a distant country, dreamed of creating uh, a new kingdom. It was more than a geographical or a political kingdom. It would be a community where people live together in equality and loyalty. Each person would give of themselves to the community at least what they got from it and maybe more. And so he called together the leaders of the clans, the tribes, and asked if they would join him for a conversation. And when they came, he pitched the vision, told them of the community he wanted to form. They agreed, and so he said, we'll create an inaugural event. There will be one gathering in this square where each leader of a tribe will bring to the center the choice wine from their vineyards. Can't be any. It must be from your vineyard and it must be the best. This was not a Wesleyan community. <laughs> then we'll pour this wine into a common or communal vat. And at the end of the ceremony, we will all drink from that vat. And that will symbolize this joint community that we're going to form. Everyone agreed it was a wildly good idea. And as they left to go back to their farms, one of them began to think to himself, wait a minute, <laughs> my family has been in the industry for years. And the wine that others make, while pretty good, is nothing quite like what we make in our vineyard. I'm a fourth, fifth generation fine dresser, and I'm not sure I want to mix my choice wine with everyone else's. How can I do this? I would lose the taste. I would lose the scent of it, and I would dishonor my family's name. And so he decided to fill a wine bottle with tap water. And he put a cork on it, and he affixed the family seal or label, so you couldn't tell the difference. And when he brought it to the ceremony that day at the appropriate time, he uncorked the bottle and poured his tap water into the communal vat. And each tribe leader took their cup and lifted it from the vat, and when they brought it to their mouths, it touched their lips they all knew the truth. It was not wine at all. It was all water. Everyone had done the same thing. While everyone was all about forming this perfect community, when it came down to it, they could not sacrifice enough of themselves to bring it to pass. Last fall, I introduced us to a shift called Me to We. It was a move from individualism toward community. I said back then that individualism was in the American blood from the beginning. It was America's other original sin. 
Therefore, every one of us that grew up in this country were groomed or steeped in individualism. This does not mean we don't like community. We do. It just means we think about community differently. <laughs> Individualists love community, but they love it for what they can get from it, not what they can give. They become consumers of it more than they are producers. And so when they join a community, any circle, any church, or any committee, they always join it for an agenda that is usually in their minds before they come. They have standards, and then they often critique the community according to those standards. Everyone in it, even God himself, must behave according to those expectations. And when they do not, they quickly abandon it and find another one. They can become pretty critical of it. Individualists bring to their communities an agenda. And like the fella in the parable, they want everyone to pour their agendas into the communal vat, but when it's lifted out, they want it to taste like their agenda. Throughout the last number of years in my ministry, I have seen several different agendas. It's expository preaching, it's spirit baptism, it's individual soul winning, it's community kitchens or community development, sometimes it's social justice, it may be diversity. And while all of these things are important elements, there are some individualists who want the entire community to taste the same thing. I do not believe that is the community that God is trying to form. I think God is trying to form something in our church that is bigger and higher than any one of our agendas or ideas. It's not just a collection of them. It's all of them sharpening each other and taking each other to another level. This, I think, is what we want. But too often we get stuck in other more human views. Let me put a few on the screen for you. I'm going to pretend I have the whiteboard so it looks drawn, but it's not. Level one is when people simply join with each other around a cause. The need, the movement, the focus is the primary thing. And we are bound to each other so long as we are bound by that thing. Usually we keep the deity out of it because deities cause convictions. And convictions tend to disintegrate this kind of community. They don't strengthen it. And so when this goes well, it becomes a diverse community and it accomplishes a lot for the social good. When it goes poorly, it becomes an idol in itself. It gets an ultimacy about it and it confuses its power with the power of God. It starts to believe that our agenda is God's agenda, and it loses itself. In the second level of community, 
we add the element of God. And this helps a lot. So people gather around convictions about God. And when they do, he is front and center. We talk about him and sing to him and we worship him when we're together. And we treat each other well. So it works in two directions. It works toward each other and it works toward God. The problem is that churches that function like this become, as I said last fall, a kind of fitness center where every program or every person in the church is like another apparatus or a machine. We all come as individuals, we get on the machine of our choice and we develop the part of us that we think needs developing and then we go home. And so there is a third. And this level three community has the benefit of the first two, but it has something unique about it. In this one, we are committed not only to each other and to the God that we worship, but we are committed to the community itself. Following the teaching of the incarnation, we believe that whatever God wants for us comes to us in human form. God, therefore, does not work alongside the church in order to do something in your life. In fact, God works in and through the church to do something in your life such that he could not do it apart from the incarnation or the body of Christ. This is the critical change because it means that Christ is the one who convenes the meeting. And then Christ uses the body to accomplish for every one of its members what those members need. Some years ago, I told an illustration. I'm going to tell it again. I hate doing this because I get partway through it and you look like you know what I'm going to say. Heck, I don't even know what I'm going to say. How would you know? But the illustration goes like this. Some years ago, when we were looking for a washing machine, I was introduced for the first time to a front-load washer. I'd never seen one of these in my life. Apparently, they work quite differently. A top-load washer has a drum with an agitator in the center of it. You put your clothes in it, you add the detergent, you put about 15, 20 gallons of water, and then you step away. And the agitator goes to work on those clothes, knocking the dirt off of those clothes. That was the one I was going to buy until they showed us a front load. This was of God. It uses a fraction of the water, less soap, and it doesn't have an agitator. When I poked my head inside the drum and asked about it, the salesman said, it works fundamentally different. 
You add the water into the detergent like you normally do, but instead of the agitator knocking the sins off of every piece of clothing, the clothing bumps up against itself. And one piece of clothing knocks the dirt off the other while the other knocks the dirt off the one. And I thought to myself, that sounds like a good church. The owner is God. The wash machine is the church. The detergent is the word, the scripture. And the people are the clothes. And the beauty of this is that in a strong church that is fashioned in a level three community, the people themselves are doing the work of the wash machine. It doesn't take a powerful personality who is supposed to be ahead of everyone else We're not looking for some stage presence anymore. We're looking for an instigator, one who can cause members of the body to rise up and start living life on life with one another. And when this happens, the community becomes something fundamentally different. This, I believe, is the community that God is trying to form. The problem with this community is that because it is centered on Christ, then we don't get to choose our companions. We welcome them by grace. They come to us by grace, all of them. That means our community or our washing machine is comprised of people we invite and some who just showed up. It's comprised of people who you like and people who don't like you. It has people who are attractive and unattractive, people who give energy and people who suck the energy right out of you, as people who are your friends and as people you're trying to avoid. If you're in the body of Christ, you can't choose your companions because it isn't your community. It is God's. And everyone that he invites is in it, whether we like them or not. So there will be people in our community that are needy 
every time that we show up, there they are, needing something again. And they never seem to have something for somebody else. They're always taking it. We have people in our community that live, <laughs> that live in a constant state of inner rage. <laughs> every time they speak, acid just goes flying. If people in our community that have betrayed us, let us down, and we want to pay them back for this by canceling them, but we can't do that because it isn't our community. It is God's. We have people in our community that are in positions of power, and we think they're using it wrongly. Why? They just fired someone from my family last week. You may not like them, but you can't get rid of them because it isn't your community. You have employees you're trying to lead and they are stubborn and obstinate and entitled and you want to just move on, but you can't because... This isn't your commitment. Are you starting to get the point? Because if you think about it, what has happened to us is we have slowly moved in to the idea that our community is who we want it to be. It is not. It is everyone that God has brought in to our path is our community. If it helps you to think of it in theological terms, then think of it like this. When Christ left heaven, he had a community and joined another one on earth. And the one that he joined was lined with people that were obstinate and demanding and energy suckers. And yet, he never abandoned them, any of them. This, I think, is our calling. One person in particular that is hardest for me to live with is the critic. Have you met them? You don't have any? See me afterwards. Take my word for it. When I was a kid, my dad used to, uh, he had three jokes and he told them everywhere. And whenever we had company over, he told these three jokes such that we memorized them. We knew them. We never laughed at them. Uh, we would say the punchline. And I found as I got older that some of these jokes were like parables. They taught lessons. He may not have intended it, but it turned out that way. I'm going to tell you one now. I'll tell you when to laugh. <laughs> because they're never that funny. There was once a man that had a dog. Took him bird hunting. Shot the first bird, fell onto the water, gave the dog a command, and he walked out on top of the water and picked up the bird. Brought it back, dropped it at the master's feet. The man was amazed at this. He'd never seen this before. Shot another one, and when it fell on the water and he gave the command, the same thing happened. He ran out on top of the water and brought the bird back to the master's feet. 
guy thought to himself, this is really extraordinary. I think I've got something nobody's ever had. So he called a friend to go out with him the following day. Never said anything. He shot the first bird, and when it landed on the water, gave the dog the command, and it ran on top of the water and picked up the bird, brought it back, and laid it at his feet. There was a pause. The man looked at his buddy and said with a smile, you notice anything uh, different about my dog? The man said, yeah, your dog can't swim. That's the joke. There, what's the moral? There are some people, if you walked on water, they'd say you couldn't swim. It doesn't matter what you do. It's never good enough. And yet, their performance ain't good either. But somehow, they talk like they're Tom Brady. I meant that as a compliment. But they play like they play for the Lions. They work for you. They lead you. These are coaches and pastors and teachers, and it's never good enough. There's always something more. They're perfectionists. They're legalists. They're stuck in the mud curmudgeons. <laughs> and sometimes they're followers. And it doesn't matter what you do for them to satisfy them, they won't stop complaining. They won't stop predicting doom. Oh, that'll never work out. And when it works out, they never say, oh, I was wrong about that. They don't say anything until the next time. And you spend your entire life chasing targets they say will never work. Because in the back of your mind, I guess, you're assuming there will come a day when they will see the light. They will go, oh, wait a minute. You were right, oh, wise one. That was brilliant, Sherlock. Only it never happens. And they get inside your head. Now, I don't know any of these people particularly. I've just heard about them. You will have critics. Listen to me. You will have critics. They will come in waves. Not all at once, but in hordes. And there will be seasons in your life where everything you do is wrong. They will come from friendly fire. Those hurt more because you thought they liked you 
and they will come from unfriendly fire. They will mock you, exclude you, circumvent you, undermine you, but they will come. You don't have to beat them. You don't have to convince them. Overpower them. And you can't eliminate them. They are part of your life by design. And your ability to do with your life what God has called you to do will come down to your capacity to manage your critics. So long as you are answering them and fighting them, even in your head, you're creating a sideways energy. They don't have to beat you. They simply have to distract you long enough and you'll quit. but you must keep your calling and your mission in life in front of you. You can't ignore them. You will have to engage them, but you don't have to appease them, and they're not always wrong. Sometimes the truth is somewhere between your critics and you. Sometimes they have a better angle on you if you'll hear it. One more time, your ability to move further in life will come down sooner or later to your capacity to manage people you perceive as your critics. And here is the good news. Jesus had tons of them. This is beautiful in a twisted sort of way. We're in John chapter eight, but in John chapter five, Jesus healed a man that was paralyzed for 38 years. And they got mad because it was on the wrong day. In John chapter six, he fed 5,000 men plus their families and they were starving and they got mad because he called himself the bread of life. <laughs> really? All right. You feed the 5,000. In John chapter 7, he borrows words straight from Isaiah's mouth and said, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink, and there will come from the middle of you a river of flowing water. And they got mad, wait for it, because he came from the wrong part of the country. Boy, there's a deal clincher. In John chapter eight, he intervenes on an execution. They were ready to stone a woman for committing adultery and the guy could have been in the crowd. He intervenes and saves her life and they got mad <laughs> because they said his testimony was invalid. So when I'm reading these stories, are you hearing this? Pretty soon there is nothing he can do except they will be upset. And is there not a part of you that says, if I was Jesus, I'd smoke him in Jesus' name. 
because these people need a good smoking. That is not what he does. In John chapter 8, he gets into an argument and the whole thing goes south quickly. And right when you think he's going to mount up and fight with the gloves off, he backs off. So I'm reading John 8, this argument, this incendiary argument between Jesus and the people that were following him. These are not his enemies. These are traitors. And I'm taking notes. It might help you. When the conversation began, Jesus has an, this is an invitation. He says, if you remain in my teachings, then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Oh, people, this is a beautiful invitation. He's talking to people that are already believing in him and he's trying to get them even further into the journey. You know what they say? We've never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that the truth will set us free? Now, in my mind, I'm reading this thinking, oh, sure, you've never been slaves of anyone, not counting Egypt or Assyria or Babylon or Persia or Rome, other than five nations and over a thousand years, never slaves. He doesn't say this. What is wrong with him? He's, he, cl he, cl he clarifies it. He clarifies it with another invitation. He says, no, no, I'm talking about a different kind of slavery. Anyone who sins is a slave to sin. And a slave has no permanent place in the household. But a son or a daughter, they can live there forever. So, so, so if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. People, this is another invitation and they interpret it as an insult. We already have a father. Abraham is our father. That was me, not him. He said, if Abraham were your father, then you would do what Abraham did, but you're not doing it. In Jesus' mind, the fatherhood of God is not genetic. It's based in semblance. One is not a child of God because they are of the right ethnicity. They are a child of God when their behavior looks like the father. So he says, if Abraham were your father, you would do what Abraham did, but as it is, you're trying to kill me. Abraham never tried to kill me. God is our father, they said. He said, but if God were your father, then you would love me, for God is the one who sent me. But as it is, you're trying to kill me. Now they got angry. Jesus said, it could be. No, it is. Since your father is the one you resemble, your father is the devil. He's been killing people from the beginning and you've been trying to kill me. 
that's where it went south. In verse 48, they say, you Samaritan devil. All right, this one just got out of hand. Now they are slinging incendiary terms at him to try to relegate his testimony. But watch what he does. Here's the shock. Jesus does not counterattack. That's the thing I want you to see. This is a time for him to climb down their throats. They are intellectually inferior to him. And they're quoting a Bible he wrote. And instead of attacking, he retreats. Where does he go? He mentions for the first time the word glory. And that becomes the key to Jesus' defense. The question is not whether Jesus' arguments are right. The question is where does he get his glory? Where does his glory come from? The Greek term for this doxa meant to the Greeks an opinion, a reputation, a judgment. And to the Hebrews, it meant to believe in, to support, to elevate, to lift up. So what Jesus suddenly is asking is, where do I turn in the midst of my critics to lift up my head? Who do I turn to? Whose opinion is most important? And rather than throw his own opinion of himself up against theirs, he retreats into an inner chamber, a fortress, a sanctuary, a holy of holies. And he says, I do nothing for my own glory. My glory comes from the Father. Well, here's what I'm saying. In the words of Howard Thurman, inside of every person in this room is an inner sea. And in that sea is an island. And on that island is an altar. And on that altar is your most valuable gift to God. It's who you are. It's your identity. Writes Thurman, nobody gets close to that altar except through your permission. Nobody defines you except with your permission. You can't stop people from criticizing you, but you don't have to believe it. 
And if it's not consistent with what God said about you, you shouldn't believe it. The trouble with me and my critics is, long before I hear their voice, I've already been hearing mine. And it goes in two directions. Sometimes my voice is one of self-importance. And so when my critics come to me, they come as a dissenter. And I feel the competition between the image I had of myself and what they say is true of me. And my temptation is to rise up and fight them back and prove my case and overperform so they will finally shut up. It never happens. The other voice I hear at another time is one of self-criticism. And so the criticism that gets to me the worst is that which sounds similar to things I already fear about myself. Tell me that I am a wild drunk and it won't faze me. I never drink. Tell me I'm a bad leader and that bothers me because I already suspect it. There are things about yourself you already suspect and what bothers you is your critics have put a finger on them and you think by beating your critic, you can convince yourself and you cannot. You're giving somebody access to that altar and you're allowing them to lay on that altar anything they want. So listen, as long as you're defending, you're losing because you're allowing your critics to set the agenda. You're chasing what you will never catch, trying to convince someone who is not convincible. And more than that, you're giving them access to the most sacred part of your being. It is the altar in your soul. When you are criticized, I hear from Jesus, you don't attack, you retreat. Go backward into the holy place where only God dwells. And what do you do when you're in there? Well, you lament. You talk to God about him. Because if you don't, you'll end up talking to them about God. It's better for you just to pull aside into that inner sanctuary that only you can go, and on that altar, pour out your heart, your criticism, your desperation. That is exactly what the psalmist does in Psalm 3. I wouldn't be surprised if not long after Jesus' fight with the Pharisees, he himself retreated and said words very similar to those in Psalm 3. Oh Lord, my enemies are on every side. 
But you, O Lord, are a shield around me. You are my glory, the one that lifts up my head. Therefore, I will lie down and sleep tonight, and in the morning, I will wake up again. 